The only way to have a kindergartner five years from now is you either have a birth right now or somebody moves in who already had a child. And when we look at births on a rate basis in the United States and nearly every other industrialized nation on earth, they're at historic lows for every one of those countries. I'm Jill Shaw here with Ross Wilson, and this is Deep Dives, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. In this pod, we bring together national experts for a roundtable discussion on key issues in our schools, diving deep into root causes and innovative solutions. Across the country, public schools are seeing big declines in enrollment, with more than 1 million fewer students enrolled in public schools over just the past four years and the steepest drops in the highest need districts. With declining birth rates, increasing alternative school options, and the looming cutoff of federal funds, all creating a perfect storm for public schools. Districts are faced with a choice, stay the course or adapt to a new reality. We're digging into this topic today with two leading experts, John Pope, director of the Annenberg Institute at Brown University, who's conducted extensive research on the trends leading to declining enrollment, and Brian Eschbacher, currently an enrollment consultant for school districts across the country, who oversaw enrollment for Denver Public Schools during a period of record growth. John and Brian join us to discuss what's driving this issue and how school districts can pivot in the face of declining enrollment. Thanks, guys, for joining us, John and Brian. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you very much for having a conversation with us today about enrollment. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So just to tee this up, can you both talk about what you do from the perspective of enrollment? John, you're a researcher at Brown. You lead an institute that guides public education thinking and policy. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about enrollment? Yeah, we've been doing research in partnership with states and districts across the country. And one of the things that's been really interesting for us as we've come out of the pandemic is the huge decline in the number of school-age children who are enrolled in in traditional public schools. And so we've been trying to think about how do enrollment declines and how these shifts in, in enrollment affect some of the things that we tend to focus on, right? How do we create effective schools? How do we think about policies that affect teachers and their work? How do we think about the broader landscape of educational attainments and and educational accountability and all these other things that we're interested in? And Brian, you spent time in Denver and helped grow enrollment. Can you talk a little bit about both what happened in Denver and then why did you decide to work really focus on that issue with schools across the country? I got to see both sides of it in Denver. The first several years I was there, we were the fastest growing urban district in the country. We were adding 3,000 students a year. We added a total of 20,000 students over the course of about a decade. And so we were building new schools all over the city because more and more people were moving back into the city, having children, keeping their children in the system. There was new housing. So a lot of really good contributing factors to it. The last few years I was there, we started to see the opposite of it. We started to see that the number of children was dropping. Housing prices were hitting record highs in Denver. Families were facing affordability challenges, moving to you know inner suburbs, outer suburbs, exurbs. And so I got to see both sides of it, and I was fascinated by it. It's not what uh, I thought I would be doing. Um, but I you know started to see a lot of other cities were going through something similar, where maybe there was new housing going up, but it wasn't family-friendly or it wasn't affordable. And so other cities were going through some of the same challenges. And I think Denver had done a really good job 
working on the situation to learn why it was happening and looking around the corner at where things might go. And so I became really interested in talking to other cities about how I might be able to help them through this as well. That's great. So, so over the past four years, public school enrollment has declined by more than 1.2 million students in the U.S. And when you dig deeper into these data, you realize that this trend is really impacting urban school districts. They've had the steepest decline. I mean, New York City has had, I think it's about a 20% decline in enrollment over the past four years. It, that is substantial. I'm just curious, John, are you seeing this? Like, is this something that you've seen in your research? And as you dig deeper around enrollment, is this happening in the Northeast? What are you seeing around enrollment decline? Yeah, I think it it, it is. I, I mean, as you say, we're, we're seeing these patterns across the country. They're very different. Some places are seeing rising enrollments and some places are, are seeing declining enrollments. Here, in, in at least in, the New, in Massachusetts and, and Rhode Island, we're seeing fairly across the board declines in student enrollment. Most districts were seeing substantial declines. And in all urban districts, we saw substantial declines in enrollment. And I think you see the same thing in, in many districts across New England. But this is, it's, it's not just that families are up and moving to other parts of the country, right? Like during the pandemic and then post-pandemic, we've seen a bigger, quicker exodus, it feels like, from public school. But then it seems to be scattershot and maybe we still can't find all of the kids who were in public school. Is that is that an accurate statement? I think that's exactly accurate. I mean, I think there are two trends here. One, we were seeing declining enrollments before the pandemic. So over the past decade, we were seeing declining enrollments. And that largely mirrored demographic shifts. So declines in the number of school-aged children. During the pandemic, we saw a much sharper decline in enrollment that has continued since the pandemic. And I think you're exactly right. We know that some of those students went to private school. The number of students who are being homeschooled spiked during the pandemic. And then there's a lot of students that are, are unaccounted for. And we don't actually know where those students are based on these aggregate data that we have. How do we not know where kids are? So collecting data on, on student enrollment is, is, is somewhat hard, right? So most of this data is collected at the state level. Districts report it to the state. And... There are lots of different dynamics that can be at play there, right? The public schools have a pretty good understanding of the number of students who are enrolled in their public school. Although, you know, that, that changes, right? Is a student chronically absent or have they disenrolled? That's somewhat hard to, hard to tell. And this is particularly true, I think, in small states like we have in New England, right? So a student in Rhode Island enrolls in a Rhode Island school and then moves to Massachusetts and doesn't process the paperwork in a way that would allow the Rhode Island school to know where they are. And, you know, maybe they're being seen as chronically absent for a while until the next enrollment report. We also have these challenges of students enrolling in private schools across state lines, right? Private school reporting to the state is done for students who are in private schools in the state, but not for students who are enrolling across state lines. And then, you know, how homeschool reporting is done is a, a whole nother question, you know, we only get a really good estimate of the number of school-aged children once every 10 years with the census. And so otherwise, we're getting estimates of the number of school-aged children from surveys that have some error around them. And so it's, it's a little hard to really nail this down. So Brian, is that where you have districts start when you're consulting with them? How important is it to know how uh, accurately how many students are in the district? 
I completely agree with John that there is no perfect data point in this. And I think we always want one. And as John mentioned, the census snapshot might be the closest we get. We know that's not perfect either, but it's still very good. And so I think it's a challenge because you don't want folks to walk away and say, well, there's too much uncertainty. We can't look at the challenge. And you also don't want folks to say, well, this is the exact metric we need to look at and let's go you know, hard on this metric. And so I think when I've seen districts and organizations do this well, they try to combine together multiple data points and see if they're pointing in the same direction. So if we look at births happening, if we look at census data happening, if we look at enrollment happening and housing happening, and all those arrows are pointing in the same direction, we can have more confidence in what it is that we're looking at. And if we see that they're all pointing in different directions, which sometimes happens just given some of the factors John mentioned, and just given the complexity of the housing market and you know mobility, then we know we need to keep looking and you know build up a more rigorous data story. But the key is to try to combine together multiple factors to build up our confidence in the challenge that we're looking at. So, so I think it's so interesting that, we, you know, in, in our previous conversations, and we just had a conversation around chronic absenteeism, mm-hmm. and the experts we were talking to around chronic absenteeism were saying, actually, this wasn't a pandemic trend. This was something that was happening prior to the pandemic, and it's just continued. And John, you had said the same thing, that this enrollment decline has actually started prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic made it worse. My question with this is, you know, I've worked in the school system in Boston Public Schools previously, and we actually went through a whole build BPS plan where we projected out the number of students in 10 years and how many there would be. And we always, I think we always may project that we're going to have more kids. And I've also worked with mayors before who said, look, we can't make rash decisions here. This always turns around like kids, you know, we have declining enrollment and then, then Kids come back. Families come back to the city. And so we should never, like, make rash decisions. And, and um, so I'm just curious about your, your guys' take, John and Brian, on this of, like, is this, like, a big deal now? Is this, like, or just is this just another cycle that we're going through with declining enrollment, declining birth rate, and everything will just bounce back in, you know, 10 years from now? Or will it bounce back in certain places because of very concerted efforts to make it bounce back? Uh, I'm happy to jump in. I am very concerned about it because I do think there are some underlying factors that are different now than in the past. And I think some of this is the difference between an absolute number and a number on a rate basis. And an example of that is births. I always start with births when I do these analyses because the only way to have a kindergartner five years from now is you either have a birth right now or somebody moves in who already had a child. And so if we can look at those two factors, right? So births and migration patterns, then we should be able to have a better understanding of what's coming down the pike. And when we look at births on a rate basis in the United States and nearly every other industrialized nation on earth, they're at historic lows for every one of those countries. So to expect that the birth situation is just going to turn around if we have a little bit more parental leave or have better childcare or something, they're being that those efforts are being tried in Scandinavian countries and in Western Europe, and they don't work there either. And so I I think the birth situation is the the place that I start, and that gives me a lot of concern. And so the only way to counter that is through migration and immigration. And so if we're not going to have large-scale changes there, then this is a problem that's going to continue to happen. I think the other piece that, you know, Brian talked about, Brian talked about births, but I think you can also look at this through the K-12 school system, right? The 
the best way to think about who's going to be there in ninth grade is to think about who's here in kindergarten. And this is also where we're seeing, I think, cause for concern in Rhode Island and, and in Massachusetts. We're actually seeing fairly you know, reasonable stability in the, in the number of students enrolled in high schools. We're seeing huge declines in the number of students who are enrolled in elementary schools. And so, you know, I think it, it sort of stands to reason that as those high school sort of stable high school cohorts are, are graduating and these smaller elementary school cohorts are moving through the system, that we're going to see continued declines in enrollments. On that, why urban districts? Like, why are we having more of an, a steep decline in urban districts? Couldn't that be attributed to more options that, that are coming up in urban schools? I think there's two things. I, I think it's we're also seeing steeper declines on the two major population factors in urban areas. I was just loading them up as we were talking. Births are down in urban environments far more than in suburban environments. And so I could just pick on Denver, the city where I live and that I know well. Births are down in Denver far more steeply than in the surrounding suburban counties. And so one of the main factors is births. The second is housing prices. And those two are connected, right? We have the highest housing prices in many, many cities in the country right now. And interest rates aren't necessarily Mm. helping because of the impact then on the rental market. So when you combine those two base population factors, then the starting point of the number of children living in Boston, Denver, or some other city is going to be much lower. So before we even take into account anything related to how families are making choices, just looking at the number of children, we see very large declines in nearly every urban area. Can I also add to that, that the the number of students in urban areas is declining, but you know, we're also seeing large declines in many non-urban areas as a percentage, right? So in Rhode Island, the Providence law over the past decade lost about, you know, 13% of its students, but places like South Kingston or Westerly lost more, more like a quarter of their students. And so there are many fewer students, but they are as a percent of the total, total enrollment, these are even more sizable. It does get down to the question though. Okay. So there's fewer kids in the system in school comprehensively. We're seeing a decline. How do you, if you're sitting in a district, running a district, which is trying to grow enrollment, how do you think about your approach? Do you spend your money serving the constituents you know you have? Do you try to grow the constituents? Doesn't that take some sort of partnership beyond just what a superintendent can do? How do you find flexibility? Because you are competing with a series of other options. Competition can be a dirty word in education. We know some folks lean in on it. We know some folks do not. That might depend, you know, what organization you're working for. I think that the starting point of knowing the difference between the number of children in your city and how those families are choosing, I think is really key. You need to know Mm -hmm. both of those. Some cities, you're having fewer children and your share of students attending your district might be steady over time. Maybe it was 85% is what it was a decade ago, and you still have 85%. It's just that there are fewer kids in your city. Okay, that's one factor. Versus, there might be a steady number of children in the city. That hasn't changed over time, but your share is dropping. More students are choosing private school, charter schools, homeschooling, whatever it might be. That difference, I think, is, is really key to understanding up front. But either way, you need to respond to it. And I think some districts are doing a better job of responding to it. And I think it starts with listening to your families. What is it that they're looking for? Because there's also a part of this that if there's fewer children in your city, but they're moving to the inner suburbs, you may have the ability to still compete. Some states have open enrollment 
choice laws, meaning that a district can serve students that live in a neighboring district. Colorado has it, Texas has it, a bunch of states have it. And so you still may be able to serve those students who may have been with you for several years, but maybe they had to move out because of housing prices, which, as you mentioned, is outside of your control. But I think listening to your families of what are the types of programs that they want, academic models, social emotional supports, enrichment programs, what is it that families are looking for? Like, why are they making choices to leave? I don't think parents make a choice based on governance very often. I ran the choice office in Denver for seven years. I, I very, very rarely had a family come in and say, I really want a charter school or I really want a district school. That's not how parents think. They think about, I want a good school that cares about my child, that's going to make them better academically, social, emotionally, and you know, through enrichment. And sometimes that might be a district school. Sometimes it might be a charter school. And so I think districts that can engage their families, listen to their families, and then adapt the programs that they're offering, I think those are the ones that are going to come out of this better than those who might just say, you know, we're going to serve whoever we serve and whatever happens, happens. So in Boston, we haven't really adjusted much to our 8% enrollment decline, meaning we have actually adjusted the other way. We have more teachers now, more staff members than we had um, and and a bigger budget than when we had prior to losing the students. And some families may say, hey, I kind of like this smaller class size, right? My kid gets more attention. Why don't we just keep it this way? Why should we be concerned about a declining enrollment? It's kind of benefiting my kid. I think that's great if you can afford it. In some states, maybe they can afford it. So I think this is going to impact different districts differently depending on your tax structure. Some tax structures might have, you know, a set pot of money and then it's just divided by the number of students that are in the state or in the district. And therefore, the per pupil could actually go up as you have fewer students because you're dividing the pie by, you know, the denominators dropping down. Other districts and states are going to be impacted more significantly, meaning, you know, if you're funded on a per pupil basis, and then the number of pupils you have is dropping, that's going to impact you. And at the same time, you have the ESSER funding cliffs that are coming. And so I think what we're seeing is more districts are being impacted financially by this. And so it sounds really good until the financial situation you know, comes home to roost. So all right, if I'm a superintendent at this point, and I'm listening to you guys, and I'm saying, oh, I guess I should probably pay attention to this. I probably have three choices, I, probably, I think, as a superintendent. One choice is like, all right, you know, I'm going to be here for like a couple of years. I'm going to stay solid. I'm just going to stay put. I'm going to like just like sort of ignore Brian and John and I'm going to try to keep as much as I can going. I have a little bit of ESSER money left. I'm just going to keep it going. And then maybe the next superintendent will deal with whatever that is. You know, maybe that's one option I have. Another option I have is like, I better get competitive. Like what are the alternative models? I want to attract more students to my district. Maybe I should enroll in school choice. Maybe I should make more magnet programs in my district or do something to attract more families into my district. Or the third option may be, I'm going to adjust to the reality. I got to do something here. I got to, I got to combine schools. I got to close schools. Uh, I got to merge programs. I have to, you know, upset a lot of families. And this is the hardest thing we do politically is to close schools and merge schools. There's nothing worse than that. Right. And you know, what do you, what is your recommendation to me as a superintendent? Like, what should I do? Should I stay, should I just ignore, stay the course, let somebody else deal with it in the future? Should I try to focus all of my efforts on attracting more families and more students? Or should I really make that hard political decision and, and merge and close schools and right size? I mean, I think it has to be some combination of, of two and three. And I think as, as Brian said, it has to involve listening to communities and families about what they're what they want, and it has to involve engaging with I think with the the sort of broader social service structure 
particularly in, in these urban districts in, in the city, right? So what's housing look like? What are other, other social services in the city look like? It's not a solution, I think, that the district can solve on its own. It has to be a solution where the, the superintendent engages with other policymakers around these questions, but also tries to understand what do families want? What do families need? And, you know, as we think about closing schools, right, that's probably a, re- a reality in some places. And how do we do that in ways that support the needs of students in better ways? John, I, I I wonder about this though. Like when we ask, I I really think who are we designing for? The kids in our system, the families in our system, or the ones who are going to be in our system in the future? Who are we designing for? Because we often do this. We say, let's go talk to families. Hey, I have three kids in the Boston Public Schools. Ask me, do you think I should close my kid's school? No, please don't close my kid's school. There's my answer. Let my kids get through their education in Boston Public Schools and then do what you have to do. But don't close my kid's school. Don't take my kids out of my teacher's classroom. This never works. We ask parents, do you want your school to be closed? They're like, no. But, but I think that's a, that's, a, that's a narrow framing of the question, right? So I think that we, we tend not to do a good job of jointly problem solving with communities and finding ways to say, here's this challenge that we're facing how do we solve this challenge together? What what set of options here would you would you like? Right, we need to close a few schools or get new school buildings. Right, how how are we going to do that in ways right. that make the most sense? And I think that there are good examples of folks who can bring in communities to these decisions in ways that I think right. lead to a, a better problem solving. I mean, when you're consulting with school leaders, and this is kind of something that they need to do. And when you're talking about, like, balancing enrollment and potentially growing enrollment, is part of the way that you talk to families just by looking at where they're going? I mean, if they're making choices that are outside of your district, it, like, is part of the analysis, why are those options more preferable to certain families? And, and can they, we replicate them within the public school environment? I think that's exactly right. I think what John said about we know what bad engagement looks like. It's asking these close-ended questions of, do you want us to close your school or not? Or, you know, asking families with like 11th and 12th graders what they want when they're going to be out of the system by the time any of these changes happening. So we know what bad engagement looks like. We also know what, you know, bad fact bases look like that are very narrow in scope and they're not looking holistically. And Jill, I think that's what you're getting at. And we need to build up a really strong fact base. That's always the first thing I would tell a district leader because we may not like what the facts are, but if we can look at it holistically, then hopefully we can have a valuable conversation with a range of stakeholders on it. John mentioned talking to city leaders as well because of the connections with housing and with the labor force. That's really important. We know there, you know, families make choices based on perceived safety. So, you know, there's other elements of the city involved in that as well. So I think it always starts with getting the facts and looking at it very holistically. And then when we talk to people, have a much broader conversation about what this means. It can't be as simple as do you want us to close your school or not? We know 100 out of 100 families are going to say no. We know 100 out of 100 staff members are going to say no. So we need to frame it differently. I think when we've seen this going well, it's talking about like separating from the four walls of the physical building your, your child goes to today. Tell us what a good school looks like to you. What does the academic model look like and the academic supports? What are the social emotional supports? What's the enrichment? What's the culture? What's the community connection? All of those things are bundles of factors that families think about when they make a choice. And that's where we need to talk about how do we think about a, a future that may not be in these four walls It might be in a different four walls down the street, not across town, but down the street. 
And how do we think about what that means for your family? And I think we're seeing better examples of this nationally because we've been so bad at this for so long and we constantly make the same mistakes on this very emotional topic that often happens to our most disadvantaged communities. I think I'm energized or I have some hope that by seeing this done better, uh, we have to make tough choices, but we can do it with the child and the family at the center of the decision and do it so that the outcome for them is more positive than the situation was before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder how, when in both of your roles, when you're working with districts, we've talked about how, you know, at certain times, the district leader only has so much power. And then some of these things like housing are sort of outside of like their realm of control. And so in your work, how often are you also working with city leaders or even state leaders? Massachusetts has a problem of, of, we're just losing people in the state kind of comprehensively. And so how much, how often do you see those things intersect as, as educators and education leaders are trying to kind of project what the next five or 10 years look like? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll say, I think, I think they don't have, they don't intersect as much as they should. I think there's been lots of an increasing recognition that we need to think about these more systemic solutions. And I think there are places that are that are doing this and starting to engage in these conversations productively. But I don't think it happens as much as it as it should. I think it's very I mean, in all of our work, right, it's just easy to be siloed and to stay focused on the things that are right in front of you instead of thinking Mm -hmm. about these broader, broader questions. But I think that we're hearing more and more calls for the need to engage across these uh, across these systems. My one comment on this is like when you talk to politicians, they say one thing you don't talk about like during election season is education. Nobody should talk about education because you just lose on education. Well, maybe this is an opportunity to get politicians involved in talking about education Mm. um, because they refuse to talk about it. Yeah, there's definitely a challenge where you have these separate governance structures. I'll just pick Denver because I'm very familiar with it. You have a, a board of education that's elected by they're by the public and you have a mayor and a city council elected by the public. And they're two totally different organizations that may have different missions and visions for what it is that they want. And an easy example of how I saw that in the past was if they were trying to build affordable housing. It's amazing. We all agree that we need more affordable housing. One of the tensions then becomes, do you build 100 micro units or do you build 20 two bedroom units, right? Right. You know, there could be the, the, the total real estate square footage could be the same. If you build 100 micro units, you're going to get 100 people off the street into affordable housing. That's a really important thing. That doesn't help us at all with children, though. Mm. 22 bedroom units would help us with children. So when I would, you know, talk to folks at the city and again, separate governance, I would say, hey, we need more affordable housing that has that second bedroom because that's where our, our children are going to live. And that's where, you know, that creates more stability for our students. So that's one of those things where everybody has the right idea in mind, right? We're all kind of grown in the same direction, but then it starts to diverge on, you know, which metric are you going for total units? Are you going for total people? You know, things like that. But this is definitely a bigger challenge. And I think, again, there's some hope here that I think we we are seeing more examples of collaboration around the country because housing is just so much more critical in so many cities than it was you know, even a decade ago, based on price, that hopefully we're seeing better paths forward of like how that collaborative relationship can work. And this is also a place where I think that, you know, the pandemic was hugely disruptive, right? It caused all these challenges in our education system, but I, including as we're talking about, right, big drops in student enrollment that were di- mm. happened directly because of the pandemic. But I think there's also opportunities here, right? That I think it was a, a clear example in many places of 
interagency collaboration. The commissioner was talking to the Department of Health more than to, to school systems for a while there. And oh, I think right. co- creating opportunities and structures that we could continue to build on as we think about some of these other challenges. So I think that I, I think so. So what I'm hearing is break the silos down between the leaders in our governments, our city government and or town government, make sure they're all talking and planning together. It's, there, it's an opportunity for much more cohesion. They learned that from the pandemic. They've been doing that. There's some promise there. What I'm also hearing is really an opportunity for authentic community engagement. There's promise there too. Like how do we truly engage a community in rethinking what our school system will look like for future years? I'm also wondering about the lever of budgeting. And Brian, you talk a lot about this with weighted student funding. If each student is sort of has funding connected to them, then where they go and where they're in school helps drive the budget for that school rather than just fund all schools at the same level, if you will. That's not really helping you make decisions about who's in your school and how you're serving them. Boston went through uh, implemented way student funding maybe somewhere around 10, 10 years ago or so. And now they're going through a conversation about ending that with way student funding and moving back to a school-based funding. And Brian, can you just talk a little bit about why it's important to have funding match the student and how that's helpful for making these hard decisions going forward? I think one of the first things that's really important about weighted student funding is we understand that students come to school every day with different needs. One child may be economically disadvantaged, another child isn't. One child might be an English language learner, another child isn't. One child might have special needs and another isn't. And so we first want to adjust funding at the student level to acknowledge that they come to us with different opportunities and learning challenges every day and that we want to fund that student to help them be as successful as possible. And I think that's part of the starting point for why funding students is really important. I understand that we might need baseline funding levels at the school level because we have to fund a principal and, you know, front office staff and maybe a mental health professional, you know, positions like that, whether you have 200 or 400 students, you might need, you know, one of them. And so some are going to be a fixed position. But It starts to, you know, it it all worked really well when districts were growing or at least steady in enrollment. And there's examples from across the country of places that have had it for a decade or more and are now evaluating it in exactly the light that you mentioned. Well, it worked well, but now I don't have 400 students anymore. I have 300 and now I'm out $500,000 from a budget, but I still have all the same adults in the building. How do you want me to find $500,000 of savings, right? And so one path as we see these budget challenges, is to say, well, let's get rid of the formula, as opposed to addressing what I think might be the root cause, which is we might just have too many schools, or we might have too many teachers at a certain grade in a certain school. And so I I think it's becoming a vehicle for opposition, as opposed to acknowledging the underlying challenge, which in some places is that when you have fewer children, you would then end up with less of an overall budget, and therefore you need to make some tough decisions. Where is the role of innovation in all of this? And it's probably a difficult thing for people to immediately get their heads around given declining enrollment and declining budgets on the horizon. How important is it for public districts to look around them and see, okay, well, outside of these districts, there is innovation happening, including in people's homes where they're choosing to have kids stay at home and be homeschooled rather than send them to school. Is there a role either at the state level or at the local city and town level to encourage innovation to some degree within our public school districts in order to solve for some of the things that we've been talking about today? 
I think there's certainly opportunity for innovation. And I, I think that, you know, a couple of examples of that, if we are in a, in a world where school buildings have to close, we're thinking about, you know, here in Providence, there's been a lot of push to build new school buildings, new buildings that provide opportunities for different types of learning arrangements mm. and different types of opportunities for students to engage with each other. And so there's this idea that in some ways we're spending money to save money long term that I think can spark innovation. I also think that this question about having Slack resources in a school allows opportunities to think about how do we do instruction in different ways, right? We're not going to, in the short term, right? This year, we're not going to fire a teacher because we don't have the we don't have the budget for it all of a sudden. But maybe we can figure out, are there other ways that we can create a team teaching model or think about opportunities for, for those teachers to engage with students in different ways that break down some of these, you know, silos that we also have within school buildings themselves. But you think that is realistic within a public school environment that people will feel somewhere they're encouraged enough to take, because it it requires risk-taking, right? You're not going to make all the right decisions when you're innovating. Absolutely. I mean, I I think there's opportunity. I think that 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 depends on depends on leadership. It depends on building leadership. It depends on district leadership. But I think there's opportunity to do this. And I think we see you know, good examples of schools across the country that are innovating, public schools. Mm. I also think there's a an arc of time here where we learn about the facts, you know, at the first period of time. And the second period of time is asking people, so what, now what? And sometimes that's for families thinking about the different choices that they have. And then as John mentioned, I think it's talking to staff about how would you work differently in light of this. So if we were a school that used to have this many students and this amount of resources, before we get to the place of saying, well, we need to cut staff, how do we talk to our staff about how we could do things differently? And I think there's there's always this component of, you know, there's the technical situation that we're working on and then how we all engage with it. And sometimes it's families and sometimes it's the staff. And I think sometimes it could be a mess to not engage are, it's almost always a miss not to engage our staff, even if it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation. I think there's a huge opportunity there before we get to the tough decisions. And sometimes that might be on, we need to redo a program model or we need to consolidate programs, but not the whole school, you know, meaning like, you know, we have a dual language program over there and a dual language program a mile down the street. They're both half enrolled. Well, maybe instead of closing the schools, we need to merge those programs together first. Or, you know, there's different levers I think Mm. we can pull. I think time is a key factor with that, not rushing these decisions. But if we get the facts and we allow everybody to understand them and give them time to come up with solutions, including some of the innovative things that you're talking about here, I think it can lead to better outcomes and hopefully avoid some of the really tough decisions that we may have to make further down the road. I'm just curious, what have we missed on this in this conversation? Is there anything we haven't covered or you feel like the listeners should know about with enrollment decline or enrollment incline? One of the things I've seen that can be challenging is there's variance everywhere with this. And I think that variance can be a challenge because what might happen in a city is part of the district that you're talking about is fine and they're not being impacted by this at all. And then part of the city is being impacted significantly by it. And that starts to create a lot of tension when you start to think about a community that has more advantages and a community that has less advantages and how that has played out over time. And that's where I think this becomes even more complex and emotional than it was to start, because it's not something that's impacting us all the same. 
And Brian, to get ahead of this, you really need to, you, you, we got to act now. We got to, we got to get ahead of this. We got to get really strong engagement going on in our communities. And we need to break down the silos in our government to make sure that we're all working together on this issue of declining enrollment or else it will happen to us and it will happen to those communities that are most disadvantaged. I guess I'll just say, I, I fully agree with Brian. And I, I think that we need to think about this from these different levels too, right? What's happening at the school level or the community level is different, a different perspective than what, what the district is facing, right? From the district's perspective, you know, maybe it doesn't matter as much whether enrollment's increasing in one school and declining in another. District enrollment is its own thing. And then from the state, how, you know, if, if we really think that the state's role is to serve all students well, then how much of this do we care about? Totally, yeah. If a student's moving from you know, from Chelsea to Lynn, we want that student to be well-served in either district. And so I think that from the state perspective, that's where we see these demographic trends in some ways in hitting the hardest or, or being the, the, the most immutable. See, I totally agree with you about that there's, the state should have some sort of role in this that they don't. In this state, it feels like there should be hubs of innovation. You know, is that you, we, we go out and for, sitting with our foundation hats on, we go out into the world and we see these unbelievable advancements being made in different pockets of the country. You know, being able to put on a VR headset and have a better biology class where more kids excel in, in much higher fashion than they do when they're sitting in, you know, a chemistry lab that has no hood and they can't actually, you know, run experiments. It feels like part of what has to happen here in order to serve students well is is that there have to be hubs of innovation and maybe those happen at the state level, you know, where they're setting up things that kids can go to to experience before we make um, districts invest ha- so heavily in things like that. Uh, I don't know if you what you think about that, but it feels like technology should be considered more as we think about serving kids well, because we should be able to serve them better than we ever have. I think the question of how can states play a role, I think there's two things that come to mind beyond what you just shared. In California, the state demographer's office calculated district-level enrollment projections for the rest of the decade using three different scenarios, kind of a high, medium, low. I think that's really helpful because a lot of districts struggle with calculating this. This is not the core competency of most districts, maybe bigger ones because they can have, you know, somebody working on that. But I think providing technical expertise to helping districts understand why this is happening and how it might continue to happen could be really helpful also for building credibility around it. You don't want to get to a place where certain stakeholders are going to say, well, you're just trying to create projections that create a crisis. That's something I've heard before. Um, So having that independence and expertise, I think is really helpful. I think the second thing that I see in Texas, which is growing faster their K-12 enrollment than any other state in the country. But mind you, at the same time, they're growing faster than anybody else. They have a grants program that gives districts funding if they have to consolidate schools. So you get money to help engage the community. You get money to help as you bring those two school communities together. You can overfund those positions to make sure that students have more stability and the adults that they've been with over the past few years, especially important for our English learners and our special education students. So they don't have to like start over again with new adults learning their needs. I think there's things that can be done at the state level to make this, you know, it's a, it's a very challenging situation, but if they can help make it more effective and keep students at the center, then hopefully that can, you know, have an overall positive outcome. That's really brilliant. I think that's right. I also think that these, um, you know, it's, these are unique challenges here in some of these New England states that have such a strong history of local control. 
and such small school districts, right? So, you know, Rhode Island, lots of school districts, but it has fewer students than, you know, Montgomery County, Maryland, which is doing a lot of innovative stuff and it is all in one single district. So Rhode Island has, mm. what, 150,000 students and Denver has 90,000. So, you know, we're only slightly larger as a whole state with, you know, 30 plus school districts than one, than one district elsewhere. And we see the mm. same thing in Massachusetts, right? Lots of these small mm. districts. And as we think about, particularly with housing, students moving across district lines for some some about, you know, some, some of this is choosing schools, but some of it's just residential choices that families are making that are leading to these challenges. How can we think about innovation across districts and these sort of cross-district collaboratives in certain ways to help to think about serving students in an area in different ways? Well, I've appreciated you guys. And I, I if you're, you want to run for school committee here in Boston or you want to, you know, school committee seat in Boston, uh, or I'll anywhere. support. Yeah. Or yeah, I'm, I'm supportive of both of you um, <laughs> taking those positions. I appreciate uh, your perspective and we thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to our conversation with John Pape and Brian Eschbacher. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Deep Dives. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. And come back next week for our next episode of Last Night at School Committee. Have a great day.